Welcome to American Narratives. It's great to have uh, a guest in in house here that I'm really excited to learn more about and hear her story. Neil Gondlukantla. Neil, welcome to American Narratives. Welcome, Neil. Thank you so much for having me. Let's just give you a little bit of a snapshot on Neil and who she is and where she comes from. Um, Neil currently is the president of the U.S.-India Chamber of Commerce, where she's been over a little over seven years. It is a nonprofit that promotes professional economic development and trade with India. Prior to that, Neil was at Ready to Work, where she was for four years in some progressively larger roles, including Senior Director of Business and Legal Strategy, and ended her tenure there as president. Uh, prior to that, she really uh, was a judicial intern with the Western D- District of Texas. Education, great pedigree, went to Boston University for her bachelor's degree in poli science and government relations with emphasis on in- international uh, politics. Uh, she got her JD, her law degree from Baylor, and she also got an MBA from Baylor, so a JD MBA, where she actually did a stint at Duke where she studied Asian American Institute in transactional law. Um, so pretty impressive pedigree. I'm sure there's a lot more between the lines, but just gives you a little bit of a snapshot of Neil. So uh, great to have you here. Thank you so much. So Neil, let's get started. Um, you know, one of the things that we always like to ask our our, our guests is, where, do, where does your family come from? Where were you born? And, and tell us about your childhood. Absolutely. So uh, my family uh, emigrated from India. Uh, My father came in the early 1970s to pursue his education uh, in engineering and then ended up um, settling here. Um, He married my mother a few years later, and then my mother joined him here in Texas. And uh, I grew up, I was born and raised in Texas uh, in in the early 80s. As a kid, what do you dream about doing? Um, I mean, it's interesting. You're in a, a role that I don't even know if you knew existed when you were a kid. But when you were in those middle school, school kind of high school formative years, what did you see yourself doing? So um, I had a pretty imaginative uh, period of time that I went through. So I think uh, the earliest career that uh, I remember um, – being interested in was was being a train engineer and trying to figure out how to drive trains because I just <laughs> love trains. Um, but that evolved over time, and um, I, you know, explored different things. I thought maybe medical school because a lot of children in the Indian American community are often directed towards engineering or medicine, and so I explored that. Um, but I think as I Um, evolved as an individual as I grew, uh, what I found was that I was deeply passionate about certain things. And so I kind of leaned into my passions as I got into high school, um, which was Model United Nations and debate. And that kind of led me to uh, study political science uh, with a focus on international um, politics. And then the rest kind of evolved from there. Yeah, that sounds like a, a, a very natural progression Although that first kind of stint of wanting to be an engineer in a train probably, you know, it it might still be a disappointment. I don't know, Neil. Well, I I do ride trains as often as I can (laughs) still. um, And, you know, I actually tried my hand uh, at at business, too, as as a young person. So um, when I was about six or seven, I think, um, my neighbor and I, who was about the same age, she and I actually, around Christmas time, we started our own little... um, 
you know, scented ornament business kind of a thing. Um, and, and so I think we tried our hand at that for, for a few days as well. So I did explore a lot of different things <laughs> when I was growing up. I had, I had some fun. That is fun. Well, it's good. And obviously there's a business slant to what you're doing now. So I'm sure it all served you well. Uh, who were your major influences growing up? So, um, you know, my, my parents were, were major influences in my life for sure. Um, they, uh, I spent a lot of time with them. I was an only child, so I spent a lot of time with my parents. Um, growing up, I was very close to my dad. He was kind of like my best friend, and then it evolved over time. My mom kind of took over that role for some time, and then you know now I guess they're both we're all still very close. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were they were pretty big influences in my life. Um, uh, they really wanted me to explore my passions, explore my you know, different, different things. I mean, they were never limiting at all, you know, try music, try art, try dance, try everything and see what, what you like. And, and what I found was I liked sports, um, and music. So I played the piano and I played tennis and, and those were kind of my two, um, my two activities that I did, but, you know, it was my dad who taught me tennis, um, so, you know, there's, there's something there and we always watch Wimbledon together. So, you know, they, I think they were, um, I think they were pretty big influences, uh, in my life very early on. Um, but going beyond that, I would say, um, they were also really strong influences in terms of, um, introducing me to things like spirituality and, um, guiding, um, my interests and, in, and in introducing me to, individuals and organizations that that helped me grow as a person as well so um, early on I would say definitely my parents um, my maternal grandmother was also a really strong influence on me I spent quite a lot of time with her um, she would uh, she spent some time with us when I was growing up my grandparents did and then also I spent many summers in my grandparents house and I would spend a lot of time with my grandmother so she was also um, a, a larger influence in my life early on um, and, uh, and, you know, it, I would say those were probably, you know, in childhood, those were my early influences. Um, as I got older though, um, my influences kind of changed. Um, I had some really, um, um, I had some really good teachers who introduced me and inspired me to, um, study history. Uh, I think, again, that was a natural inclination for me. Um, and, and I can remember all of my history teachers with, with, you know, um, great reverence, actually there, uh, many of them are very inspirational. And again, um, my, our, some of our history teachers are also involved with our model UN program. So there was just a, a lot of overlap there. Um, and then of course, um, there were others, uh, that I met in college who were influential. I, um, had the privilege of, of being taught by, um, some former ambassadors, uh, and, and also having interactions with them at Boston university. So, um, very early on, um, I would say they started to shape how I thought. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, it, it kind of opened me up to a whole world that I really had no idea about, um, just by the very fact that they were at, at my university or, um, that I happen to be taking their class. So I was very fortunate in that sense. Well, well, that, that, that's helpful. I mean, that really takes us to kind of your career journey, right? Um, 
and for all the teachers listening, I'm sure they're they're smiling, thinking, you know, they, they had an impact in your life and had an influence. Um, so, you know, we, we talk about high school. Sounds like some of them had a major influence, helped you kind of find your passion. Um, how did you get started in your career? Tell us about that. So um, I uh, graduated from undergrad, and I knew that I wanted to pursue the study of law. Well, and let's stop there for a second. You went to Boston University. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're raised in Texas, so that's not exactly around the corner down right. the bend. That's True. that's way the heck two thousand miles or thereabouts up up uh, kind of northeast. What? Why be you? So um, I'd say there's several different reasons. Um, the first thing is, um, as a student of history, you know, New England is is like it's the birthplace of America. I mean, there's just really no other way to look at it. And uh, again, in late middle school and early high school, I I had the opportunity to travel there a few different times um, on personal trips uh, with my family. And then again, um, I also um, traveled with my mom uh, on one of her business trips as well. And, you know, I did the freedom tour up there and, I had the chance to just walk around and and really just soak in the city, and I found it to be a very intellectual city. People were pursuing interesting ideas; they were exploring all of these, um, you know, um, these ideas and 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 in in novel ways. Um, and you could really it was that that energy was palpable in the city. You could really feel it, um, and and I think the connection. Um, to the past and, and to our founding. And then, you know, um, seeing, seeing the evolution um, to what was happening in the universities, you know, and that's the cutting edge, the leading edge, the bleeding edge of, of where we're going. You, in, in, in New England and Massachusetts and, and Boston in particular, you, you really feel, you can feel history, you're living history there. And, and, and so I, I knew early on that that was the place for me to go. Um, and then why BU in particular? Well, my, my parents and I took a college tour, actually, and we made a summer trip of it, and we visited a lot of universities. And BU was one of those universities that just, again, resonated with with me and, and with our family. Um, and, and I really liked the diversity. There were a lot of international students at Boston University, um, and they had a great, um, they had great programs. Um, so I, again, like I said, the professors that taught me were ambassadors and, you know, they would have dinners with ambassadors and, and the professors would have us home, like our whole class home for, and so there was this personal connection and warmth um, that, that I really connected with. And, uh, and I had a wonderful experience there. So um, I'm, that's why I chose BU. Um, and then, of course, I was fortunate to receive a scholarship as well, so. Oh, just a little, hey, there's money involved too. That doesn't That's hurt, always does a good it? Thing. Yeah, trust yeah. me, as a parent of five kids, we really understand <laughs> the, the the utility of a scholarship. Um, well, so, so thank you for sharing. And fast forward, what was your first job right after college and how did that progress? So my first job out of college was um, working as an intern for, for Governor Rick Perry. Um, as you know, I studied political science, and I was really interested in, you know, history and politics, um, and uh, and I wanted to come back home to Texas, uh, and so I um, had this opportunity to join the governor's office, 
Uh, and, and so I started there and I worked there during Hurricane Katrina. Um, and, and so it really opened my eyes again to, to a number of um, different issues that were facing our state and also our neighboring states at the time. And, um, and, and so I, I seized that opportunity to, to go and work there. And uh, again, a very eye-opening experience, something very different than what I grew up with. And um, I did that for about a year. Yeah, from um, Boston to uh, Rick Perry in Austin—that <laughs> that is on so many levels just completely two worlds apart, right? Which is great from an education experience standpoint. Terrific. At one point, you said, "I want to be a lawyer," right? Yes. Or something like that. I mean, take us to, to kind of how did you get to the point where you ended up at law school and and where you went to school? So um, I wanted to be in Texas. And uh, I, I definitely um, thought I wanted to be a courtroom lawyer, a litigator. And Baylor had the best, litig- still has one of the best litigation programs in Texas, if not in the whole country. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I looked into um, that. And then also I wanted to be close to, um, close to home, driving distance uh, to my parents, about three hours away. After having spent three years... Um, away from home, um, I, I thought it might be nice to be a little bit closer. Um, and it turns out I haven't really left Texas ever since. So, you know, I've only moved uh, further north up I-35 from Austin to, yeah. to <laughs> Dallas. But Sounds I like haven't, a lot of people too. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I've, all, I've stayed within Texas since, um, since uh, coming back. So that's great. And, and, you know, so, and you got, in the meantime, you also got an MBA. If, if a JD wasn't enough, you thought you'd go get an MBA and do some time at Duke. So well-credentialed, very well-educated, um, and very, you know, it's interesting. One of the common themes I'm hearing in your decision matrix is very heartfelt. Um, you were chasing purpose and passion more than perhaps money or convenience. Is, do you think that's accurate? That's, a, that's very true. Yeah, um, I think for me, um, as I mentioned to you early on, spirituality has always been an important part of my life. Um, and I think what spirituality does is it it opens you up to yourself and it really helps you connect with who you are and what you really care about. Um, and I think, I think for me, um, I've been blessed to both have some understanding and awareness of the things that matter to me and the things that I care about. Um, but I've also had the opportunity, you know, thanks to my parents and to, to life itself to lean into many of those interests and, and really explore them. Um, and, and so I, you know, definitely, um, you know, I, I've definitely tried to listen to myself as much as I can um, I take time with my personal decisions and try to make the one that feels right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that is definitely, um, that's definitely true, I would say. No, I, I love that, Neil. So for those listening, can you elaborate on that? Because you've touched on it multiple times, the spirituality part. Did you have an aha moment that you said, oh my gosh, I need to explore this more? Can you tell us about that? Well, I think... You know, every, I think one of the most profound things that I've ever learned um, is that every moment of our life is, is really, you know, if you're building a wall, it's a brick in that wall. Um, and so 
you know, the strength of the wall really is determined by the, the, the strength of the experiences or the, the richness of the experiences. So a life well lived isn't a destination. It is the journey. It's, it's every step of the way that you're living your journey. Um, are you enriching your life in the process? And enrichment doesn't necessarily mean money. It doesn't necessarily mean, um, you know, status or anything like that. I think for me, what it always meant was, um, am I doing something where I am learning, where I'm growing as an individual? Um, am I helping others in the process? And am I doing enough to take care of myself and my family for, for our you know, present needs, but also for our future as well? I don't want to be neglectful of that. But it, I think it's, it's connecting with all of our different, you know, with, for me anyway, it's connecting with all of my different responsibilities to myself and to others, but also to the community um, and trying to find the, the intersection point of where all of those things meet. Um, and so for me, there was never really an aha moment as much as it was finding um, the intersection of, of my life um, at any point in time and then connecting that um, to, you know, this, this broader sense of knowing that this is all a part of my life and a part of my journey and making sure that to the degree that I can, am I building this wall or this journey or this life that, that I would be proud of at the end of it? Um, and so, and so I would say that it's not really so much an aha moment, but it's, it's more of just a way of looking at, at life um, and my journey. Yeah, and, and if, if it really the, the journey is the outcome, you're living in, an, in a way where it recognizes everything's interconnected and has purpose and meaning, and that at the end of it, you want to be uh, good, glad with the journey and, and the outcomes thereof, which starts from your intentions, what you're there to do. I mean, honestly, it's very consistent with what I know about your career journey, which has been in purpose-driven organizations. Mm -hmm. and, and we can kind of jump into that if that's okay. I mean, sure. uh, you know, how it, you know, tell me, obviously you, you kind of did the judicial intern and worked for a lawyer. You worked in Rick Perry's kind of administration during a very interesting time, by the way. Um, there was a lot of, lot of debate. I know Houston took in a lot of folks from Louisiana. Dallas took in, I mean, there was a lot of the polit political lens, the spiritual, I mean, everything was working in, in, in fast pace at that point, I'm sure. So there's a lot of learnings there. We could spend a whole episode on that one, but let's move on. I, I you did some an internship and ultimately ended up at ready to work. Kind of why there, why then? And tell us a little bit about that decision. Yeah. So let me actually walk back to college for just a second and then um, we'll come back to answer sure. your question. Um, so when I was in college, one of the courses I took was um, uh, it was a, a class where the professor was a, an, a professor of economics Um he had just come over to BU from Harvard to start um, an institute on race relations, actually. And he always looked at the connection between economics and race. And he wrote a profound book called The Anatomy of Racial Inequality. Uh, and, you know, he talked about how we as a society sometimes get into these cycles or individuals can get into these cycles uh, and and sometimes it's hard to break the cycles until you, you actually recognize that you're in in that cycle um and you know he he left you know the end of the book for for those of you um that 
hopefully will read it. He, you know, he, he leaves um, the reader with, with some things to think about in terms of things that we can all do as a society to move um, towards a more um, harmonious society where everyone can thrive economically speaking. And, um, you know, it has social, political, and, and of course, financial implications. Um, but, you know, that was kind of the lens through which I viewed the next experience that I'm going to talk to you about, um, which, you know, happened when I happened to be working for Governor um, Perry, and I was an intern there. And one of my jobs was to answer the phone. Um, so like any good intern, you know, answer the phone calls that come through the governor's office. And, you know, especially during Hurricane Katrina um, and Rita, you know, one of the things that I would hear sometimes are calls from people who felt threatened by the people who were coming over from Louisiana. Oh, the crime rate in my community is going to increase if they drop off a busload of people in my town. Um, and, you know, there were a lot of overt and subracial undertones to a lot of what people talked about. Um, and, you know, it's kind of surprising to me because you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't know too many people would pick up the phone and just, you know, just share their racist inclinations with another person. But these were very passionate people who had no, you know, concerns about, you know, their concerns and, and they didn't hold back at all. And, and they, you know, wanted to express themselves. And, and so what I heard was just a lot of racial um, there were a lot of racial undertones, let me put it that way, to every, to a lot of the concerns that people were expressing. And as someone who really felt like I'd never known real racism or experienced real racism when I was growing up, which, you know, is, is a credit to the civil rights movement, really, that I didn't feel it as a student growing up or a kid growing up in Texas um, in any large way, you know, to suddenly hear this as an adult to know this is my state and <clears throat> to um, and, and to hear it through the lens of knowing that there are things we can do about it uh, to improve it so that people don't see economic problems or, or crime issues as a racial problem, but rather as what it is, an economic problem or you know, a problem of crime or whatever. Um, and recognizing that there's something we could do about it is actually what gave me... Um, well, it, it caused me to be interested in what Ready to Work was trying to do because what Ready to Work was trying to do is help inner city, primarily minority students um, actually bridge the academic gap that exists. Um, currently, if you look at the data, um, there's, there are, there's a lot of data out there that suggests that either because they don't have the family support or you know the access to the same types of resources sometimes, um, that they're not able to realize their full potential. And Ready to Work was trying to solve some of that. Um, and so I was very interested in what the company was trying to do. And my own family was able to realize success in the United States and have a true American you know, um, success story, I think, because of the strength of both of my parents' education and the life that they were able to build for that from that. And I thought, this is an opportunity for me to help to try and create the same kind of environment for others to succeed as well. Um, and so that's actually what led me to join Ready to Work. Um, and uh, what we were trying to do is, is explore what causes students to not realize their full potential, what 
what is causing students to drop out of high school? What is causing them to um, underperform? And then try to create programs that actually solve that problem. Wow. Um, talk about a heartfelt mission orientation based upon personal experience and a few aha experiences, obviously, mm-hmm. along the way. Uh, very much going after passion and purpose. Um, it's really cool. That was very inspiring, actually. It really is. And uh, we, again, we can go to, I know you're, you're on some boards that are addressing the same issue, like Concilio and others. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. uh, with, with the education gap in minority communities. And a lot of it is parents understanding in education, understanding what's available and why it's important. And, and, well, and, and Neil, you actually touched on it, and I, I wholeheartedly believe this. It's when people don't have the self-awareness and realize that they're stuck in the cycle I think that's the huge educational gap that we have in 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 the communities that are low income. So. Yeah. Well, thank you. So so obviously you went ready to work. I can see the attractor. It was the mission. Uh, it was very core to your experience and where you wanted to kind of make your mark. And you were there for four years um, in progressively larger roles. You ended up as president. I did. Wow. So. Uh, how, what do you attribute that to? I mean, what would be your key learning from that four-year stint that might be of value to the folks who are listening? So I would say, number one, um, if you're going to work for a company or a boss, um, try to try to find someone who sees more in you sometimes than you even see in yourself. Um, I was blessed to work with um, a gentleman named Albert Black who – who, you know, saw in me the ability to lead when when I wasn't sure I was experienced enough to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, we, we experienced um, some challenges early on at, at Ready to Work. Um, it was a growing company, uh, like any good startup. It, it had its volatility and its ups and downs. Um, and in, in some of that volatility, um, you know, in, in the midst of that, um, our president resigned, and then I was asked to step up and lead the company. Um, and I think, you know, one of the reasons that um, I was asked to lead the company is because I had been studying the company the whole time I had been there. I, I, I in a sense, knew um, what we were trying to achieve. I knew what our mission was. I knew how our operations did or not did not tie into the mission, where our strengths were, where our weaknesses were. And I had a sense of what we might need to do to turn the company around and, and to, to, to get it back on track and get it to where we were trying to, you know, go. And so, and I think, um, you know, Albert and, and some of my colleagues recognized that and, uh, and asked me to step up and lead. Wow. So you're invited to, to take a leadership role and obviously did. And, you know, uh, again, very meaningful kind of the story. Thank you. And then at, then at one point, I guess you recruited away. Tell us about the transition to where you're at now and kind of what you're doing. So, um, you know, we, we got the company to a really good place, uh, ready to work. And um, I, I really felt that uh, we had a great team in place and, you know, we were striving um, and making progress along our journey, um, and I was actually ready for a new challenge. Uh, that's, you know, that was actually what happened. And and at the time, um, you know, the 
the chamber was was looking for a new executive director, a new leader to take the chamber to the next level as well. And um, through, uh, I, so I, I actually connected with um, uh, one of one of their recruiters, and and I didn't know that it was a chamber of commerce. It just said an international trade organization. So, you know, having um, been interested in international politics and, and international business for a long time, it immediately piqued my interest, and I wanted to learn more. And um, and so, you know, when I when I heard it was a chamber. I wasn't sure that it was actually going to be the right fit for me because we as a business, when I was at Ready to Work, had been a member of many chambers. And I I wasn't sure that they were really meeting the needs of business in the way that I needed them to as as a young executive. Um, and But then I thought, okay, well, there's the opportunity because we can actually make a chamber responsive to business needs um, and try to help it be the kind of organization that can respond. So... Um, so eventually I, um, decided to join the chamber and then, you know, worked with our board and our team to try to transform it into the kind of organizations very responsive to businesses. So, and we're still in that transformational journey, but you know, the, the, the vision really is to try to make it that one-stop shop for, for businesses to go to if they are trying to, um, grow and expand and develop themselves. That's uh, that's a fun and exciting to say the least, and it sounds like it's everything's a journey. That's another thing, the kind of theme I'm hearing. The journey is the outcome, and uh, the journey in your current tenure uh, leading obviously your organization is uh, is a transformation, which has its own demands on leadership. Obviously, well, demands and challenges, right? It sounds like you like challenges in your day to day. So, tell us a little bit more about your work. Um, what do you enjoy most? What do you and or, or what do you enjoy least? So I think um, I think what I enjoy most is uh, the exploration aspects of running a business. I think when you're whether it's a nonprofit or a business or anything, um, you're always exploring. You're talking to customers. You're talking to, in our case, members um, uh, that are other companies. Um, you're, you're talking to them, you're trying to understand what their needs are, you're, you're reading about macro trends and micro trends, um, and, and again, it's a learning process. You're always learning new things when you're talking to um, all of these different stakeholders. Uh, and then, you know, it's, it's taking all of that, you know, disparate information, the, the customer feedback or the, the member feedback and, and changes that are happening um, in, in the local economy or the national economy, um, you know, things that are happening in politics and how that might impact trade. Um, and you're, you're kind of aggregating all of this information and you're, and you're looking for the window of opportunity. Where's, where's the window where I can help to lead our organization through um, to take it forward and continue to push forward? Um, and so, you know, there's, I think in, 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 in terms of what is my favorite part, I think that's my favorite part. It's it's the learning and the solution, mm-hmm. um, you know, identification or the, you know, the identification of the next step and the path as we move forward. Um, my least favorite parts, um, you know, I, I really hate, uh, I really hate fundraising. 
<laughs> you um, are not alone. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think, I think, um, I, I never like asking people for money. I think, you know, whether it's, uh, what, you know, whether it's for, for the chamber or for anything else, I, I really hate fundraising, but what I have found, um, over all the time that I've been doing, you know, in fact, I, I think one of my favorite moments of trying to decide whether I wanted to join the chamber or not to lead it was a conversation I had with the then chairman of the board. And I said, well, do you see this as really a sales role or, you know, do you, do you see this as more of an executive non-sales role? And he said, well, you know, there will be some selling involved and, you know, but, um, you know, it, it'll, it will be what you make it kind of a thing. Well, let me tell you, running anything is 100% <laughs> yes, a sales job. Um, but, uh, but, I think, um, but I think what I found worked for me. Uh, and, it, and it was, again, a journey and a process that I had to work through. Um, what I found worked for me was not selling something, but it was sharing what I was envisioning with people that might be interested in supporting that vision. And then building out that vision together. And I think that takes takes you out of fundraising and makes you co co-pilots or partners in building a shared common vision toward the future. I couldn't agree more with you on that. I, I, I think that people that look at trying to sell something are often not as successful as those that are mm. reframing and motivated by service or building something together, mm -hmm. um, even in for-profit. Um, quick interlude. I, it, to me, it is about helping provide solutions. And they know it if that's what you're there to do, not push product or sell. So so framing it as service uh, or co-building something and getting them engaged from their need base, I think is is a much better strategy than sales. <laughs> most right. Cases. And then, and you also mentioned it, it's kind of sharing that, that vision for what you're trying to do and the long-term impact that you have in the community where it's I mean, it, or there's a huge need for it, right? So, absolutely. So, Neil, tell us a little bit more. Is has there been a, a memorable challenge or mistake, perhaps, that you have experienced? And if so, what did you learn from it? I'll have to think about that one. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge um, that I have faced more recently um, is, you know, when you run an organization and especially something like a chamber of commerce where you're interacting with lots of people and lots of organizations and community leaders and community partners. Um, and hopefully if you're doing that even reasonably well, um, you start to be a first phone call for a lot of people. Um, and I think, um, and if people see you as, you know, bringing something valuable to the table, um, they they want you to be on their team too. And I think one of the biggest challenges that I've had of late is trying to hear my own voice and trying to see what actually really resonates with me in, in the midst of um, all of these different asks. Um, and they're all very flattering. And, and, you know, it's, 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 I mean, it's, it's nice to be wanted and it's not nice to be asked and it's, it's very affirming um, in a sense. 
Um, but it's also sometimes hard to hear your own voice in that. And I think the biggest challenge for me has been just trying to hear my own voice. Yeah, you get stretched a lot of different directions. I, I'm glad you took this ask, though, if I can say that. I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad you saw value in spending a little bit of time here at American Narratives. Um, you know, as we go through this, uh, and there's been a lot of conversation about equity in the midst of diversity and inclusion and equal treatment. Is there anything, any time along the way that you felt that you were not treated fairly for some reason or another? Um, and how did you deal with that? Honestly, I, I'm not sure that I've really felt that in a really powerful way, to be really honest with yes. you. No, yes. thank you. Um, yes. Yeah, um, I'm not sure that I've had that experience. But then let me also say that I've always been comfortable being the only woman in the room, the only minority in the room. I've That's never been an uncomfortable place for me. Mm-hmm. I think it's because I was the only girl on my soccer team in third grade, a co-ed soccer team. And <laughs> like, wow. So, so I've, I've, I've never been Good. uncomfortable. I've never been afraid to speak my mind and to say or do what I need to do to affect the kind of change that I'm hoping to do, uh, that I'm hoping to. And so, um, you know, I, I think for me, what I really believe in, and I hope I live my life this way, is we have to empower ourselves as individuals. Um, and we have to recognize that we, you know, everybody's on a journey. And, and we kind of have to figure out where our journey intersects with other journeys, whether that's a company trying to build products and services or, you know, even a social circle. I mean, are you aligned with the energy that you're surrounding yourself with? And, and if you aren't aligned with it, you know, is it because you need to grow as a person to align with that? Or is it that, that, you know, you have evolved beyond it and you need to find a new space for yourself. And I think that we're all kind of looking for those um, moments. And so I think, I think we have to empower ourselves as individuals. And, and I think um, I think when, when we are authentic and I think when, when we bring our A-game to solving a problem or building a company or whatever it is, um, I think that, you know, we resonate with the people that we need to resonate with in order to, to affect, you know, whatever it is we're trying to do. Well, and I can tell you haven't made fear-based decisions. I try not to. Yeah, and, and it's and I totally agree with you when, when you have focus and confidence, and you have you know, and I'll say it for you: spiritual eyes on things. What, how do you feel? Not just to what do you see. Mm-hmm. And I think part of you know self awareness is recognizing that you don't know everything and you don't have all the answers, and to ask for help. And if you know, if somebody doesn't help you or somebody you're expecting to help you doesn't, then look for it somewhere else. Um, and keep keep searching and keep exploring and you find your path along that way. It's not, you know, I think, I think we limit ourselves more than we allow ourselves to grow. I agree. I, I agree. Couldn't agree. I think we oh. put ourselves in a box that's of our own making much of the time. So I, I agree. And life is a journey, and, and thank you for sharing your, your perspective and point of view on it. You know, you've shared quite a few key lessons throughout your, your progression 
growing up and, and your career journey. As we end the podcast interview, what are any other key lessons or learnings that you'd like to share with the audience today? I would say the first thing that we as individuals need to do is, is assess our life. Um, and, you know, look at, you know, I'm part of my spirituality is making sure that I am fulfilling my responsibilities to myself, to my family, to my community. Um, and I actually define those. I mean, you know, for me, it's, these are defined, articulated things. What does it mean for me to be a responsible daughter or a wife um, or a daughter-in-law or um, a friend even? And, and, and do I take time um, to invest in those responsibilities? Uh, that, so that's the first, I think that's the first things we have to define what we really care about um, and, and find a framework that, that really works, you know, for us, that resonates with us. Um, and then, you know, define it with your own definition. You don't have to live by anybody else's definition, but you, but you do have to answer to yourself. Um, and so, you know, I try to check in um, with, with my responsibilities um, periodically and make sure that I am answering to myself on the things that I claim to be responsible for. Um, I would say the second thing um, that I think we all have to do is make sure we're taking care of ourselves. So, um, you know, I uh, am a firm believer in women being fully empowered. So um, as a woman and as a career woman, you know, I believe in being financially independent. I believe in um, taking care of myself. Um, I try to take care of my health. It's probably the areas I'm weakest in. Um, but, you know... Um, but I try to, you know, to, again, have measures for each of those areas where um, I'm, I'm challenging myself. And it's not against anybody else. It's just against myself. It's, you know, well, you know, what can I do to get healthier? Am I checking in with my doctor every year? Am I, you know, she says I need to lose weight. Am I trying to lose weight? Am I making progress in that journey? Um, if I have a financial goal, you know, am I, what am I doing to actually achieve that financial goal? So making sure I'm taking care of myself, um, in that, in that process. Um, and, and then, you know, also taking that time to reflect and making sure that the things that I'm doing align with who I am or who I think I am and where I want to go. And, 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 you know, also checking in with, have my goals changed? Has my vision for the future changed? And am I, pivoting or realigning myself along that journey. So I think, um, you know, I think for anybody, I mean, I am really one of those people and it can probably sound uh, cliche, but I really do think you can achieve anything you want. But I think you have to sit down and figure out what it is that you want and define what it is that you want for yourself and then go out and achieve it. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, I'm going to, Paraphrase what I hear. Uh, it's doing the internal work, right? Uh, I heard reflection, knowing what's important to you, uh, and then organizing your life, your time, your focus, your attention and intention and, and time on those things that are important to you. And it's helpful if you have indicators, milestones, and measures, mm -hmm. whether it be health, whether it be relationships, whether it be impact at work. Community service. Community service, right? So those things that you know, are going to be part of our journey. Make sure you're intentional about doing that 
versus reactive and responsive and then wonder why you're not making progress and really happy. Right. <laughs> it does start with what's important to me and organizing your life cr creatively and proactively around it. That's what I'm hearing at least. I don't know if... Um, no, that's very clear. And, and I like, and thank you for sharing that because I think a lot of times many people, executives forget about that important part. So recently we just launched the C-suite state of mind. And one of the things that we've seen now two years in a row is people are taking that time to whether it's meditating or exercising and it's taking care of themselves. And so many times people forget you, you've got to take care of yourself first before you take care of others. And, and that it really does start with uh, aligning your values, your time, your attention, intention, and checking in, if not daily, very, very regularly. I completely agree. Yeah. And I, I, you know, and the thing is, I think, I think it's really about, you know, these are not things, especially I think as you get older, maybe when you're 20 or 25, you do it a little bit more frequently. But once you kind of set yourself on a course, um, you know, you really don't need to check in that frequently. You know, you don't have to realign yourself that frequently. I mean, you know, I'm probably at the place now where I probably check in once every couple of years and, and assess if, you know, where I'm going is where I want to be going and if what I'm doing is what I want to be doing. And um, and if I'm, you know, aligning my, my work with my where I think I need to be spending my energy. And, um, and so I think it changes um, as we get older. Uh, and But I do think early on that that intentionality – can be extremely meaningful, and I'll leave you with this. Um, so we hosted a, we host a women's conference every year at the chamber. It's something we started um, after I uh, joined the chamber, and we kind of um, it's grown every year since. And I think that's where we actually first connected. Yes, we did. Um, and we had a speaker there, uh, and you know she um, she's the chief marketing officer of, of a large company called NTT Data, uh, and um, and she um, she shared something, and I thought, you know, this is this is what everybody needs to know. So I'll repeat what she said. And she said, well, you know, when I was twenty something years old, I knew that I wanted to be a chief marketing officer. I want this is what I wanted to be. Um, and she sat down with a mentor. She had a good mentor, and they kind of mapped out a journey for her at every step of the way. And then she had that roadmap. And you know, I'm sure there were twists and turns and pivots along the way, but if you look at her today and you know what she did, like, you know, I won't give her away her age, but a, a few years ago, um, you can see that it was a very intentional path. And I think, um, and I think that, you know, there's a lot to be said for intentionality. Um, I think a lot of people think that um, success is by happenstance. And, and I'm not somebody who believes that. I think, I think that luck plays a role, um, but I don't think it's all of it. Um, so I, I, I do think intentionality can help you get closer to where you want to be um, than, than not. Yeah, it uh, resonates with me. And and, and I couldn't agree more, you know, yeah. just that, that thoughts do create our reality and being intentful on everything that we do in our day-to-day -day lives is, has an impact in our future. I agree. So, well, thank you for your time. This has been very enlightening. Um, and thank you for sharing your narrative, your story with our audience. And uh, with that...
American Narratives is brought to you by CMP, a minority and women-owned firm providing solutions across the full talent life cycle, from recruitment and assessment to leadership coaching and career transition solutions. To learn more, visit www.careermp.com.